if I say a company that you know, just raise your hand. It's only You're not going to have it up forever. I just want to see how many people actually understand these companies. Enron. Anybody, anybody know who Enron is? Tyco. Keep your hand up if you were up for Enron. I just want to see how many people I get up. Arthur Anderson. WorldCom. Okay, a lot of hands not up. Who, you guys hear about the Enron scandal, how they were doing all that kind of stuff? You know about the Ponzi schemes, like Bernie Madoff? Anybody know about that? Okay, it, it's most of you. What do all these firms have in common? On the surface, what they have in common is they're all failed businesses due to a lack of moral and ethical decisions. Every one of them. On the surface, what they have in common, all failed businesses due to a lack of moral and ethical decisions. But there is something that I would propose to you today that is on a much deeper level that they all share. It's not the surface thing that's going on, but it is a problem that is underneath that led them to that place. In a book that I was recently reading on... uh, Human resources, and when I say human resources, I mean like what you think of with business, human resource directors. Uh, You know, I I read weird stuff for some of the classes I'm in, and trust me, this is a painful book. But I got this one nugget out of it. There was a human resources director who was teaching, and uh, he was at this class. He's a retired guy, and he was teaching. He was guest lecturing somewhere, and he was talking about these folks who these companies and how they had come to this place where they just crumbled in a day and one of the students raised his hand and corrected him and said they did not crumble in a day. Arthur Anderson, when Ar- and he was specifically speaking of Arthur Anderson, when Arthur Anderson, when the feds came in and Arthur Anderson was sitting there shredding all the documents, there wasn't a crumbling in a day. This was symptomatic of the much deeper problem that was with these companies. And this professor, who I don't know if he's a believer or not, or he actually wasn't a professor, guest lecturer, he said, you know what, you're right. He acknowledged that student was correct. You know what, you are right. This all did not happen in a day. See, what all these companies lacked was discipline. Both internal discipline and external discipline to do what was right for the long-term profitability and stability of their companies. There's a difference between internal and external discipline. External discipline is imposed from outside. It's making yourself genuinely accountable to others. Not trying to hide the things that are going on, but doing everything above board so that if questioned, you don't have to shred documents. And internal discipline is the stuff that we do for ourselves where we say, I have a check inside of me. Something is wrong with this whole process. Something crazy is going on here. And so there's this internal discipline. There are different types of discipline. All of these companies lacked discipline. Though each one of their stories is different in the details of the firm's demise, the underlying principle is the same. These companies and the people that were a part of them were so busy living in the moment that they never paused to consider what it would do to their long-term health and viability. 
One of the worst things that's happened in the business world is the publishing of quarterly profit and loss statements. Because you have to do better every quarter. And this is causing people to shy away from the discipline that's needed and to get into long and get into problems that do money short term, bring in profit and bring in things short term, but cause long term problems. This has gone so far as, as what's happening inside of companies. And, and this is going somewhere that's going to apply to you today if you're not a business person. What, what's happened in these companies has happened such an interesting way that, you know, the traditional employment contract, do you guys know what I mean by the traditional employment contract, where I go take a job with this person and we have this, this understanding with one another that I'm going to be committed to the company and in turn you're going to do everything you can to provide me lifelong employment. The traditional employment contract has become, in many instances, a thing of the past. But do you know that recent studies, studies up even into this year, have shown that the short term you come in and do for me and I'll do for you and da 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 is actually hurting businesses. And the ones that are still holding to the long term commitment and expecting a long term commitment from their employees are actually performing better over the long term. Isn't that interesting? See, it's this total lack of discipline, this culture of a lack of discipline, this culture of living in the moment, this culture of, I gotta make a profit for this quarter, this culture where corporate raiders go in and they take over these companies and they turn a quick profit and they sell it and then everybody's pensions undone and all of these problems. And it's crazy. This all comes back to this idea of a lack of discipline. Now, here's the thing that you need to understand. It's really easy for us to think about these companies and kind of wag our heads in disgust. And we can point out the obvious flaws of logic they had and we wonder why they couldn't see it themselves. I mean, how could you not see for yourself the Ponzi scheme was going to get you? How could you not see that departing from standard acceptable accounting practices was not going to get you? How could you not see that, that lying about the energy stuff that you're trading and all of that and, and shuffling everything around was not going to come back and get you? We can all wag our heads and discuss it, and we can all see the flaws that these companies made. And we wonder why they couldn't see it themselves. Amen? Don't you, don't you wonder sometimes why they couldn't see it themselves? Amen? While it's certainly true that there were people involved in each of these companies that had criminally liable uh, things they were doing, actions that they were performing with full knowledge of the, of the criminality of it. The fact is that many of the people who were involved in these companies were simply overwhelmed by the pressure to win in the moment. The pressure to win in the moment, the pressure to produce these short-term results was so overwhelming to them and they were being pushed and, and prodded and, and just crushed underneath this overwhelming pressure to produce right now that they got blinded. They weren't going and trying to be criminals, many of them. I, I would go so far as to say most of them. I mean, there were certainly those who were but they were trying to produce these results. They were overwhelmed by the pressure of living in the, in the moment and these pressures blinded them. 
And this is where discipline comes in. Internal, external discipline working hand in hand with one another. I mean, discipline could have stopped a lot of these scandals. If people would have been disciplined to go and look at the regulations that that the government has set on what are fair business practices, if people would have been disciplined to go and talk to others and say, look, I'm considering doing this. What are the ethical implications of this? What are the legal implications of this? What are the moral implications of this? Some people say, what's the difference between ethics and morals? Morals are individual. Ethics are for like the organization. Ethics are morals for an organization or morals for a profession. So moral is more personal. Ethics is more my group. You know, doctors have ethics that they have to follow. But there are also personal morals, and hopefully that clears up the difference. The problem is that the discipline required in all of these instances, all of these instances, stood in direct contrast to meeting the immediate needs. And these companies sacrifice long-term health and profitability, and the proof is that they all claim bankruptcy. Many of them out of business. I mean. When I went to work at the Walmart Distribution Center, when we planted our first church, there was a lot of people who came to work at that distribution center who were driving an hour and a half to two hours for work because they were coming from the failed Tyco plant. These people were out jobs. They had built lives and they were crushed by this stuff. And and those folks that were in those plants were in that plant. They, most of them, probably at that level, probably all of them, but maybe one or two, didn't really understand what was going on. They were just under the pressure. They were under the gun to produce these results, to do all of those things. And, and the discipline needed stood in direct contrast. When, when you have the higher-ups and you have the CEO and the board up there demanding that we have profits for the shareholders, demanding that, that every quarter produces a bumper crop of cash. It just overwhelms and and these short-term goals undo us. So how does this all tie in? This is very similar to how we're tempted to conduct ourselves in our Christian walks. And this, I believe, is what the author of Hebrews is addressing in our next passage of Scripture. And that's in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. And we're going to go through 17. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Follow along with me here. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is why pastors, why I was saying they'll skip over certain passages. That one's kind of harsh. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. That's kind of weird that he just throws Esau in there. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired, that's Esau, to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found he had no chance to repent, 
though he sought it with tears. This is, the, this is about discipline. Remember, because last week was about discipline, and we're starting here, this passage, verse 12, therefore, so it's talking about, hey, all this stuff about discipline, therefore, lift up your drooping hands. But we're going to go into that a little bit more in just a moment. Let's pray together, invite the Holy Spirit to come in and, and to teach us and for us to understand what the Lord might be saying to us about discipline and how it affects our long-term life with Him and so that we don't exchange it for short-term, in-the-moment, living-in-the-moment things. Father, we come to you today and we ask you to speak to your people. We ask you to speak by your Holy Spirit whom we recognize completely and totally as God. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come in right now and explain to us, illuminate the scriptures to us. Help us to understand and apply this in our lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. So, again, last Sunday we talked about how God disciplines us out of his great love for us. And yet many of us struggle from time to time receiving God's discipline as loving. I mean, even this morning during prayer meeting, uh, Dave was praying that he was thanking God for God's discipline because it shows that he's loved. And he goes, God, I know it's weird to say this, but the discipline that you put on me shows you love me. Right? I mean, we all struggle with that idea of that. This happens for various and sundry reasons, and I'm not going to cover them all again here. Instead, I'm going to remind you that God's discipline is not meant as a punishment. It's meant as love. And I'm going to encourage you to listen to last week's sermon online again if you need to review this concept. Instead, what I want to talk about today is when our self-love conflicts with God's love and how we should deal with that. That loving ourselves in the moment, that undisciplined approach to life, when it conflicts with what God is doing, how should we deal with it? Before I read the scriptures and prayed with you, we talked briefly about the scandals with corporate giants such as Enron, Tyco, WorldCom, and others. And I suggested that discipline, both internal and external, would have helped these companies to do the right thing and to thrive long term. And I suggested that we are faced with similar dilemmas in our own lives. And the author of Hebrews has provided an example to help us think this through. He talked about Esau, right? Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And so I want to just give you an idea of where that story that he's referring to comes from. It comes out of Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 34. And what he's referring to there in the passage of Scripture is that Esau was out hunting. Esau was a hunter, okay? Ain't got any hunters? Amen? Come on, raise them high. Okay, so you guys are Esau's, hopefully just in the hunting aspect, not in the rest of it. All right? So, but... Esau comes in from hunting. He's famished. He's ready to eat. He's so hungry. And what does he do? He sells his birthright to his brother Jacob for a single meal. He says, I've got this immediate need in the moment right now. Give me some of your stew. I'm going to die. His immediate need was dictating what he thought was his immediate need. What his felt need was, was dictating everything he was, he was doing. 
was dictating all of these decisions. But I don't know if you understand what the birthright was that he that it talks about here that he sold. He said, who's, in verse 16, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What is the birthright? The birthright was a practice observed in the ancient Near East whereby the eldest son was granted a double portion in the inheritance. Okay? Let me just give you an example of this real quick. Dale is a multimillionaire. Okay? He's got three sons. His oldest son in this practice is going to get double of what the other kids get in the inheritance under this practice. Caleb's like, yeah. And dad, why didn't I know you were a multimillionaire? Right? So he's got $10 million when he, when he passes away. $5 million of it gets left to Caleb. And then $2.5 million to the other boys a piece. We have to understand this to understand what Esau was doing. Which one would have been better for Esau's long-term health and prosperity? Forgoing the lentil stew that his brother had made and maybe going and whipping himself up something and taking the 30 minutes or whatever it would have taken to cook something or giving up a double blessing. Which one? If he, if he should have said, uh, if he should have went and whooped something up for himself and kept the double blessing, say amen. amen. Okay, so we all get it. We all understand what he's giving up. The author of Hebrews underscores Esau's massive failure at self-discipline, at internal discipline. When it came to his birthright, he traded for a short-term goal his long-term health and viability. Now, we're tempted to believe that we, as modern Christians, would never be so foolish as this. But the author of Hebrews, and therefore I would suggest God, because he's the one who inspired it, is not as convinced of this as we are. He's not as convinced that we're so much smarter than Esau. Because while Esau sold his birthright to the physical wealth of his earthly father for something he wanted in the moment, we're often tempted to do the same thing, but on a much grander scale. You're always like, what? I'm not tempted to do that. I don't have anything grander than... than I mean, my parents aren't millionaires. and da, da, da. I mean, I'm not giving up all of that stuff like that. Well, this is evidenced in verse 12 and 13 where the author of Hebrews encourages us to lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our weakened knees so that we can endure discipline in order to receive God's blessing. Now, I said we were going to come back to that word, therefore. Some people might think it's a stretch to say we're being called to endure discipline and this is what we're talking about. But the Greek word dio, which translates as therefore at the beginning of verse 12, literally means for this reason. 
So the author of Hebrews is talking about that whole thing about discipline and, and enduring discipline which produces righteousness in us. And he's saying, for this reason, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's basically saying because discipline leads us to righteousness in verse 11. Remember we read that last week. For discipline, or excuse me, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, for this reason, the preceding thought, for this reason, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weakened knees. And make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Discipline leads us to righteousness. And we need to do what it takes to endure discipline. But how does this play out? I mean, some of you, maybe many of you, are still not convinced that we're just as tempted to make these awful mistakes and to sin against God in this way. Okay, it's fair enough. So I offer the following examples to help you think this through, and I urge you that these are only examples. This means you'll need to apply this in your own individual situation, and all of these examples come out of this passage where we're tempted to live in the moment, not be disciplined internally by our own selves or externally by what the Word says, by what brothers and sisters come and hold us accountable to and all those things. We're tempted to live in the moment and therefore short-circuit our long-term health and viability. So here's, here's the passages, here's the things out of the passage that it says. In verse 14a, it says we should strive to be peacemakers in everything we do. So look at it. Look at verse 14a, which is the first half. Strive for peace with the people you like. Strive for the peace with the people who are your friends. Strive for peace for the people that are just in your church. Strive for peace with the ones who are like you. No. No. It doesn't say that. It says strive for peace with... Oh, come on. Come on. This isn't passive learning. Strive for peace with everyone. We're to strive to be peacemakers in everything we do. You know, some people thrive on conflict. Most of the time, it's not that they just love to fight. I mean, there's people that just love to fight. Most of the time, it's not that they just love to fight, but rather that they want to demand their own way, and they they have to get their own way even at the expense of others. Often these demands are about petty things that simply don't matter in the long term but instead are only about short-term things. Now, we're getting ready to, to have a, an opportunity to be petty like this. If we vote on June 28th to do this renovation, we are going to have the opportunity to be petty about stuff that does not matter in the long term. Demanding that we have a certain color of paint or a certain color of carpet or a certain color of tile or this or that or the other thing. And we are going to be tempted to put that ahead of the long-term health and viability of our congregation and ourselves. Amen? Look, even the healthiest church can have a church split over a building project. 
It happens all over the country all the time. We make a lot of jokes about it. Well, I don't like the color of the carpet. I'm leaving. Who's seen that happen in a church? Come on, be honest. Amen. Have you ever seen it? It, We're tempted to be petty like that. We're, We're tempted to do that. And I bring this one up specifically about this being a peacemaker and everything because we're going to be faced with this come June 28th if we do, in fact, vote yes to build. We're going to be faced with that. And I want to encourage you not to go for a short-term goal of a certain color or a certain texture on the wall or a certain type of carpet or a certain type of light fixture, but to do what the Scripture says, to consider others more important than yourself and strive for peace with them. Because in the, the relative scope of things, it doesn't matter because it's going to be out of style in 10 years. If we're lucky, it'll be in style for 10 years. Amen? If we're lucky, it'll be in style for 10 years. And it's just not worth trampling on somebody for paint, is it? Or for carpet? Or for a light fixture? Instead of being peace takers, I said takers with a T, or peace fakers with an F, by demanding our own way in the short term, the author of Hebrews tells us to be peacemakers, even sacrificing what we want in the short term for the long-term benefits. That's right out of the passage in verse 14. Now, the next one says that we should strive to keep short accounts with every person we encounter. This is out of verse 15. Now, you're like, I don't know. Well, here's what it says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, trouble, and by it many become defiled. How do people get a root of bitterness? Because they get slighted by somebody. Maybe the slight was not just an imagined slight. Maybe it was real. I mean, maybe the slight is, I, you know, I came up and I just slapped Matt in the face as hard as I could. Matt's like, I got a, man, I got a right to be mad. And I'm not going to forgive him until he bows down, until he repents. And they, they, they hold the slight close to their heart. They almost wear it like a badge of honor, right? But you don't know what they did to me. Oh, yes, I do. Because you're holding on to this, you're in a horrible bondage. You've told me all about what they've done to you, and you're in horrible bondage to this. And you've got a root of bitterness in your life that's eating you up because you won't forgive, because you've decided that punishing them and making them feel bad and holding on to this is more important than the long-term health. And then, by the way, it's going to affect your whole church. It's going to affect your whole company. It's going to affect your whole family. I mean, think about it. Think about some some folks don't have family reunions that used to have family reunions because somebody in the family got slighted by somebody else in the family and just won't let it go. And now the family no longer gets together every July to have a picnic and hang out and have fun because, man, we get together and Stacy comes and makes it miserable. Because she's sliding. She's got a root of bitterness and she's holding on to it. I mean, we've all seen this kind of stuff happen. Or we've seen it inside of churches. Or inside of businesses. Well, I have a right to be offended. 
and it affects so much. And, and I could go through the whole process of how it affects. And, and, and how do you know that a root of bitterness is, is, is in somebody's life that's affecting other people? Here's a, good, here's a good litmus test. It's not the litmus test. It's a litmus test. It's one way. If there is somebody in your midst that everybody has to walk on eggshells around because if they don't walk on eggshells, it's going to break loose. So a pretty good indicator there's a root of bitterness in that person's life. And now it's bleeding out on everybody else. The short-term gain that they're trading here is proving ourselves right when someone else slights us and and traded for the long-term gain of a peaceful, loving, and mutually upbuilding relationships. Here's another one, though. We should strive for sexual purity. It's right there in the passage. Verse verse 16a, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. This sexual immorality just comes out of nowhere in this passage but see i believe god is talking to us about discipline and what it means to be disciplined here i mean here's what i think it's talking about think about think about this the lady who doesn't feel like anybody loves her now i know a lot of ladies who i've counseled with talked with through this kind of stuff and asked them how they got in the position that they got in where they where they're so in bondage in this area in their life the lady who nobody loves her and she decides to go ahead with an illicit relationship because she's tired of not feeling loved and so she trades a lifetime of regret a lifetime of bondage a, a soul a lifetime soul tie to somebody for the short-term fix of being needed by the guy. I mean, think about that. He's talking about a short-term thing, trading it for a long-term thing. And there are ladies that are in this room that I guarantee you go talk to and that have done that, and they're still paying for it to this day. And, they, and they, they can explain to you why they were doing it, why they did it. I, I, I wanted to be loved. I, I wanted to feel needed. I wanted all of these things. And, and so in the moment, I felt this way. But then the moment was gone and the feelings of helplessness and, and not being loved and not being wanted flooded right back in. I mean, this is such a huge problem that some of the best-selling books and movies are about this encouraging it we trade the short term the satisfy me right here right now make me feel special right here right now and it doesn't last and so i go back to a well that's dry nothing lasts out of it and i get another little tiny drop of water out of it thinking i'm going to be satiated thinking i'm going to be filled and i'm not I had a guy version of that too, but I'm running out of time, and so I'm going to skip that over. While there are many examples we could give, the author of Hebrews is clear. Like the people at Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, Arthur Anderson, and other firms, we're tempted to sacrifice our long-term health and goals for short-term wins. Every day, we're tempted to do it. These are just three examples There's a myriad more examples when we're tempted in the short term to embrace something that the scriptures tell us is absolutely 100% sinful. The scriptures define it as sin. But we grab a hold of it anyways because, man, it it meets my need right now. 
You need to understand that you're sacrificing the long term. Here's why I say that you're sacrificing the long term. Because without holiness via disciplined faith, we will be unable to see the Lord. That's what it says in verse 14b. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And no amount of tears or grief will win our cause before Jesus. In verse 17. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Some people are saying he's just telling a story about Esau. No, he's using Esau as an example to us. Your eternity could depend on this. Some people are saying, Pastor, are you saying I could lose my salvation? I'm saying you wrestle with what it means. You either gave up your salvation if you embrace a lifestyle of sin, or you never had it to begin with. You pick. I'm not going to pick. You pick. Because the passage says that without holiness, you're not going to see Jesus. Jesus himself said, there will be many who say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and heal and cast out demons and all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to look at them and say, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Those are his words, not mine. I'm not talking about us sinning as believers, saints who sometimes sin. I'm talking about us embracing a lifestyle of sin that is contrary to what the Bible teaches, standing in our way. It takes disciplined faith, internal and external, to achieve long-term victory. Internal, we have to discipline ourselves. External, when a brother or a sister comes to you and talks to you about something that's going on in your life, you have to sit back and listen to it, prayerfully consider it and say, you know what? You're right. If they're right. Iron sharpens iron, therefore one man sharpens another. Christianity is not meant to be a solo endeavor. The church is never singular. It's always plural. The word ecclesia is a plural word always. Bobby, I love you, but girl, you are not the church. But you are, the three of you. And you are the whole body here, but there is no one individual that's the church. God created us for a relationship with him and with others. So don't take the undisciplined route and, and, and mess yourself up for all of eternity Or let's say you get it right and you repent and now you're just carrying baggage. Because man, I got a lot of baggage I'm carrying. And I keep going and putting it down at the cross and some of it creeps back up on me and I'm like, dude, how am I dragging this along again? And I got to go back and put it at the cross. Don't sacrifice the short term. But don't take my word for it. I want you to look at the scriptures this week. Monday, Genesis chapter 25, 27 through 34. This is about Esau and what he did there. This is what the passage was referring to about Esau selling his birthright. That's a story. Now, some of your Bibles are going to have a division at verse 29. Read the previous two verses. Read it there because it all goes together. There wasn't a division in the original scroll. Then Tuesday, Genesis 27, 30 through 46. This is again about the passage, what he's talking about there, where Esau shows up for his blessing 
and can't get it. I mean, he gets a, his father speaks something over him, but it's not what, it's not what he should have got. But see, he traded. Wednesday, Matthew 7, 27 through 29. Thursday, Romans 2, 12 through 16. Friday, James 1, 19 through 25. And Saturday, James 2, 14 through 26. All of these passages of Scripture out of the New Testament are about us if we choose to take the undisciplined, living in the moment route, the consequences that come on us. In my big idea for this sermon, I write a big idea. Bonnie sees this and Rebecca sees it. I write a big idea. There's a popular saying, I don't know, it might be going out of style now because it's a fad and that happens. But the, the saying's YOLO. You know, you only live once. I, this is like the theme of undisciplined life. YOLO. Well, I'm going to say fine, YOLO. You only live once, so why not live it for Jesus? Why not live a disciplined life for Jesus? Why short-circuit everything for something in the moment? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask you to speak into our lives to help us to understand what it is that you're trying to say to us. Lord, we, we confess to you right now, we stand humbly before you and confess to you right now that we are tempted at times, and I'm not saying everybody every day, but we're tempted at times, Lord, to embrace some short-term thing that will short-circuit us long-term. Father, I pray right now for anybody who has embraced something short-term that you would bring healing in their life that you, would, that you would help them to lift up their drooping hands, to strengthen their weakened knees, that you would help them to come in genuine faith and repentance, and, Father, that they would endure whatever discipline so that they can have the holiness that is required for them to see you. Lord, we're not talking about a legalistic holiness. We're talking about a holiness that embraces you, like Fran was talking about in, in Sunday school this morning, talking about embracing the grace that you offer in such a way that it transforms our lives in the way that we live and act and, and witness to others. Father, transform us today. Don't let us be held down by sin. And Father, if there are those who have embraced some of these shortcuts that aren't ready to repent, would you continue to speak to them by your grace? Would you convict them as you see fit? And would you bring them to a place of ultimate freedom, healing, and life in Jesus Christ? Because, Lord, these are your people that you love. And you want to see them face to face and lavish them with love that only you can give. So we ask it all in Jesus' name. God's people said.